The scripture reading this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. You can follow along in your pew Bible on page 2 or on the screens behind me. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. Thanks, Kim. I invite you to keep your Bibles open, and uh, let's pray together as we look into God's Word. Gracious God, thank you that you are a God who speaks. You've made yourself known through your Word, ultimately through your Son. So we pray, God, that we would be a people who hear, who listen. 
And we confess that we need your grace to be able to do that. We need your spirit to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. And so would you do that this morning as we look into your word? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we stop uh, singing carols long enough and sipping cocoa uh, long enough to think about what we're actually celebrating every year at Christmas time, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, leaving the glory of heaven to take on human flesh and dwell with his people, when we stop long enough from the festivities to think about that reality, we begin to realize how truly strange Christmas is. You think about it for a minute. There is a God in heaven who not only made us, but who wants to be with us, with us, us people. That's amazing. But who not only wants to be with us, who actually came down to do that, to be born as a baby, to live among people. The Son of God took humanity into his divinity, he became true God and true man at the same time to dwell with his people. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus is our Emmanuel, which means God with us, God in our midst, in our presence. And yet, as strange as that whole idea sounds, that, that the God of heaven would want to dwell with us, it's not uh, something that's necessarily new to the New Testament. It's not like you turn to Matthew and all of a sudden this idea of God wanting to be with his people jumps onto the page. This is part of the heartbeat of the Bible's story from beginning to end, God's desire to be with his people. Uh, We've seen it recently in our series through Exodus. If you're just joining us prior to this week, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. And one of the things that we've seen And we'll see again and again is God's desire to dwell with his people. When he revealed his name to Moses, I am who I am. One of the details, uh, one of the clues as to what that means was the repetition of the phrase, I am with you. He's the God who is with his people, who comes down to be with them in order to rescue them. Later, we will see his holy presence descend on Mount Sinai as he makes a covenant with his people and gives them his law. And after that, uh, we're going to see him give detailed instructions to Israel that they might build a tabernacle for him, basically a portable temple, a tent of meeting where God can meet with his people, where they can meet with God. And let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, he tells them. And then the book of Exodus concludes with the completion of that tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filling it. God takes up residence among his special people. God dwells with them. As uh, Exodus 29, 45 and 46 summarizes, God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why? That I might dwell among them. 
God wants to be with his people. And so there is a very real sense in which what we're going to celebrate this month in Christmas is a fulfillment of the book of Exodus and God's plan to rescue his people. But it's bigger than Exodus. God's desire to dwell with his people is is bigger than Exodus as well. It is one of the most consistent themes throughout the entire Bible. Uh, From his presence with Adam and Eve in the garden uh, to his presence with Israel and the tabernacle and then later the temple to the filling of the church with his spirit on Pentecost to the promise of a new heavens and a new earth where the dwelling place of God is with man, as Revelation puts it. God's intention, his promise, his plan is to be with his people. He wants to be with us. And the climax of that desire, the the centerpiece of his plan, and what ultimately makes it possible for a holy God to dwell with a sinful people is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's the climax of the story. Matthew 1, 21 through 23 says, uh, this is the angel speaking to Mary, saying she will bear a son excuse me, speaking to Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And Matthew tells us that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the climax of God's desire to be with his people. And so what we're going to do this Advent season, we're we're stepping out of Exodus, but not really away from Exodus, because all of this is related to what we're seeing there. What we're going to do is trace this theme of God's desire, his plan, his beautiful promise to be with his people as it unfolds throughout the scriptures, beginning this morning with the first temple, which is the Garden of Eden. And so, if you're not still at Genesis 2, make your way there with us as we look at the first temple in Scripture, the garden. So, the book of Genesis, obviously, it's the first book in your Bibles, and it begins with really two accounts of one creational event. So, chapter 1 shows us a poetic portrait of God's creative work, structured in seven days, with the main goal being to introduce us to the main character of the story, to God. This is who he is. And and we're introduced to God uh, largely by seeing what he does in that story, looking at his activity. He is a God who demonstrates his supreme power. He speaks everything into being. No one else can do that. He has supreme power. Uh, We see his sovereign authority in that first chapter. He's the one who sees what is good over and over again. He has authority to evaluate his creation. He's the supreme authority. And we see in that opening chapter an intentional purpose. God isn't just playing around. He's making creation for a reason. He has a purpose in what he's designing, uh, ultimately for the sake of his glory. But the way he chooses to accomplish his purpose in creation and and his purpose to fill all things with his glory and worthy reputation, the way he does that is through the creation of a people 
made in his image. That's the high point of that first chapter. God making humanity, male and female, in his image, and to be his children, to have relationship with him, to reflect his glory, that they would be a display of his holy character, and to represent his kingdom, to serve him as his representatives on his earth. So that's what chapter 1 shows us, this big God with all authority and all power and all majesty who has a big plan that he's going to accomplish through a people made in his image. But then the camera zooms in, if you will, in chapter 2 to give us another portrait of God's creative activity. And this time it comes in the form of a narrative, of a story, starting in Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven, the earth and the heavens. And so chapter 2 gets a little bit more intimate in its portrait of God and his work. Uh, God gets his hands dirty, if you will, planting a garden, forming a man from the dust, building a woman from the man. And we see in that detail uh, an intimate portrait of God. We see a clearer picture of his love and care for his creation, uh, and especially for his people, the precision with which he creates the first man, forming him from the dust, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, that he becomes a living creature. Uh, We see the beauty of his place displayed even more brilliantly. This description of you know, the waters of life flowing out of the garden and, and the quality of its natural resources and the vastness of its produce, all sorts of trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food. And we see God's rule over his people on display. He doesn't just drop Adam in the garden to figure out his way. He talks to him. He tells him what to do, to work it and to keep it. And he warns him what not to do. There's a certain tree you need to be aware of and not eat from. Because if you do, everything will be ruined. And so we see his rule and his beauty and his love. And and most of all, we see his blessing. This is a God who blesses his people through his abundant provision of all of of their needs and through his determination to provide the man with a helper fit for him. To not leave him alone, but, but to... Uh, create the first couple in marriage. In many ways, Genesis 2 is like God's blueprint for what his creation is supposed to be like. It's the original blueprint. Like when you're getting ready to, to make the building and you roll out the map, this is where we're going, people, okay? This is what it's supposed to look like. Uh, and you know, you might summarize it, as, as some have done, as a picture of God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing for the sake of God's glory. That is what he envisioned for this earth, for this life. That's the blueprint. But can we really say that what we see in Genesis 2 is a description of a temple? I I called it a few minutes ago. I said that this is the first temple. Is that true? And if so... Does it even matter? I mean, it's kind of, if we're honest, it's kind of a nerdy question to ask. Is, is Genesis 2 describing Eden in temple-like language? Who cares? You know, uh, that, 
Why, why would that matter? Why should it matter to us? Well, first, if that's how God's describing it, that should matter to us. Because if we love God, we want to understand what he's saying to us. And if that's what he's saying, we should care about that. But second, if Eden is the blueprint for what life ought to look like in God's world, and if Eden is described here as a temple where God dwells and interacts with his people, then that ought to impact how we think about the rest of life and what life is supposed to be like on this earth. This is God's blueprint. It should matter what he had in mind. But the first question we have to ask in order to understand all that is, what in the world is a temple? Uh, What is a temple? That's not uh, something most of us are used to in our day-to-day experience. We don't call our church buildings a temple. Uh, They're not. They're a building. They're, in some ways, a a pretty rain cover. Uh, In the New Testament, the church itself is the temple. And so what is a temple? Uh, What are we talking about here? Simply put, in Scripture, a temple is where you go on earth to meet with the God who lives in heaven. It's where you go or where you gather on earth to meet with the God who is in heaven. It's his dwelling place, as it's called, a sanctuary, a tent of meeting. It's where you go have an audience with God. It's where he makes his special presence known on the earth in a special way. God says to Israel in Exodus 25, 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Uh, Now, so it's it's where God makes his presence known in a special way. Now, that does not mean that God is contained to that building. Even when Solomon completes the, uh, the construction of the temple later in 1 Kings, in his dedication, he says, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you how much less this house that I've built. And so a temple is where, it's how God makes his presence known among his people in a special way, to have relationship with him, that they might meet together in some way. Uh, It's like this, if you will, if you think of God's realm in heaven, this invisible, unseen realm, and our realm here on earth, the temple was kind of like the overlap or the intersection point. It's where you had an audience with the God of heaven uh, here on earth. So, So that's what, a temple was like. So is Eden one of those temples? Is Eden supposed, are we supposed to understand it that way as a dwelling place of God among his people? There are several reasons why I think Eden is supposed to be understood that way. And I want to talk about a few of those, but then most importantly, I want to talk about why that matters, what difference it makes to understand the garden in this category of a temple where God dwells with his people. Uh, but why, why should we see it that way? A few quick reasons. First, there are multiple parallels uh, between the way the garden is described and the way that the tabernacle and the temple are described later in Israel's story. So one of, one of the curious features of both the tabernacle, which was that portable tent, a portable temple Israel had at first, then eventually they built a, a, a permanent building in Jerusalem. That became the temple. But one of the curious features of both of those designs is that they were filled with all sorts of garden-like imagery woven into the architecture, all this plant imagery. So gourds and open flowers and palm trees and pomegranates and lilies, all of those most likely being uh, designed to 
remind people of the garden originally, being an echo of that first garden temple. Genesis 2 also highlights the presence of gold and and precious stones in the land. Uh, Virtually everything in the temple is overlaid with gold. An onyx stone is one of the specific stones used in its construction. Uh, The picture of a river flowing out of Eden to water the earth. That same picture you see in the garden is part of the vision of the new temple described in Ezekiel and in Revelation. This Uh, the life-giving waters flowing from the presence of God. And then there's the imagery of the cherubim. So the cherubim, these um, heavenly creatures, we don't know exactly what they look like or anything, but there are only two contexts in the entire Bible when the cherubim are mentioned or talked about. The first is the garden in Genesis 3.24 when Uh, After Adam and Eve sin and are kicked out of the garden, God places a cherubim there at the entrance with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. That's the first time cherubim are mentioned. The only other time they're ever mentioned or talked about is with respect to the tabernacle and the temple, where God commands Moses to make two statues of cherubim on either side of the ark of the covenant, the footstool of God, that kind of throne, if you will, and then later two statues of cherubim placed on either side of the Holy of Holies in the temple where the ark dwells. So it's this intentional reminder of God's presence, the guarding of God's special presence with the imagery of the cherubim, the only two times they're ever mentioned. And so there are a lot of parallels uh, between the garden and the later temple. The second thing that makes us think, well, maybe what's going on here is is that Eden is kind of this first temple, is the way that Adam's service to God is described in the garden, in what many have suggested to be a kind of priestly language. Uh, In Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's the phrase, to work it and keep it. Now, we read that phrase and we think working and keeping a garden, you got planting and watering and weeding and all sorts of those kinds of things. That's what working and keeping a garden looks like. And, and that's what we should think of in this context. But what's interesting is that the phrase that's translated work and keep here is often used, the exact same phrase is often used to describe the priest's duty in the temple, where it's usually translated worship and obey, or serve and guard. So the priest's job was to obey God and to guard the temple. And so as as one author argues, the man's life in the garden was to be characterized by worship and obedience. He was to be a priest, not merely a worker and keeper of the garden. And that, But finally and most importantly, we should see Eden as a temple For the simple fact that God is there. God is there with his people. That's the main defining factor in whether something qualifies as a temple. The presence of God with his people. And that's what we see in Genesis 3.8. God walking in the garden in the cool of the day in order to spend time with his children. So, just as Israel's temple was the place where The priests experienced God's presence, so Eden was the place where Adam walked 
and talked with God. And so I think there are many reasons that we should see and think about Eden in terms of a, a temple, a dwelling place of God with his people. Great. So what does that matter? Uh, is that just kind of fun trivia that you can bring up at your next Christmas party? Did you know that in Genesis 2, Eden's really described as a temple. What's the difference? What, what point uh, does the author, does God want us to see in understanding Eden as a temple? What does that actually tell us about God's vision for his world, about his plan for humanity, his relationship with his children? And then, of course, what does any of that have to do with Christmas? Um, well, what this tells us, since Eden was the blueprint for God's uh, vision of life in this world, what this tells us to understand Eden as a temple is that we were made to enjoy God's presence, to serve him as priests for the sake of his glory. We were made for this. That's what we see here. And I want to draw out four practical implications uh, for the difference that this makes when we understand what God really has in mind with his blueprint. Um, and then I want to make one observation of what this has to do with Christmas. So first, the first implication here. We were made to enjoy the unmediated presence of God. We were made to enjoy the unmediated presence of God. There was in Israel's tabernacle and temple a curtain dividing one room from another, a veil separating the holy place from the most holy place where God dwelt, where God takes up residence among above the ark. God dwelt in the midst of his people in those temples, but he dwelt behind the veil. So he was with them, but there was a mediation. There was something in between them. Not just anybody could approach him, uh, not without washings or sacrifices. Nobody could see him and live. And even today, long after the destruction of Israel's temple, there remains this unseen divide between heaven and earth, between God's space and our space. We don't see him, even though we believe in him. That is not God's original design. That is an accommodation because of our sin. We were made to enjoy God's unmediated presence. There is no curtain in the garden between God and his children. God walked and talked freely with Adam and Eve, and there will be no curtain in the new creation either. And until then, we will never quite feel at home on this earth. Not until we are united with God, enjoying his intimacy in an unmediated way. When I use that word unmediated, I mean nothing in between us. Just the glory of God's presence and us right there with him. That's what we were made for. And we will never be fully at rest until it's true. And in the meantime, our hearts long for that presence. We don't always realize what our hearts are longing for. But that discontent, that dissatisfaction that we feel every day in big ways or small ways, that is our heart's longing for the presence of God. St. Augustine put it this way. 
You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The psalmist put it like this, Psalm 42, 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My soul wants more than anything else the presence of God. Or Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That wasn't possible for Israel. It's not even fully possible for us today, but it's what our hearts were made to do. And until we are enjoying God's unmediated presence, we will not be home. We will not be home. And so think about that. Do you have that kind of longing, a a holy discontent with this life? We were made to enjoy God's unmediated presence. The second point, we were made to serve him as priests. We were made to serve God as priests. What's a priest? A priest is someone who offers their worship to God in his presence in the temple. Uh, offering sacrifices, uh, service, glad uh, offerings to him. The Lord God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. That working and keeping of the garden, that was his priestly service. That was his act of worship to God. So we think sometimes that worship is what we're doing right now with you know special uh, songs and, and uh, different Patterns we go through of reading scripture and praying together. And that is worship. But worship so much bigger than that. Adam's worship as a priest in the garden was to be a good farmer and to be a good husband and to raise a family. That was all an act of worship to God. When God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, that makes marriage and family an act of worship to God. We were made to serve him as priests. And everything we do in life ought to be an act of worship. We're either worshiping God in what we do, or we're worshiping something else. We're always worshiping, though. We, we were made to be priests. And so, so often we, we buy into the idea that you can divide this world into sacred and secular. So into religious and non-religious Uh, Things that I do that are overtly spiritual or religious, those things are for God. That's my worship. Prayer and and coming to church and reading my Bible and helping my neighbor. Uh, But when I go to school Monday morning, or when I go to work Monday morning, uh, that's non-religious. That's secular. Uh, I'm not really representing God or serving God in that context. I only do that when I go to church. We bought into this idea that we can compartmentalize our lives, that I'm only worshiping worshiping God with part of it. But if we understand Eden as a temple and Adam's uh, cultivation of plants as his priestly service to God in the presence of God and his marriage and family as priestly service in the presence of God, then all of life is sacred. All of life is an act of worship to God. Whether I'm 
changing diapers or changing oil or crunching numbers or taking tests or grading tests or whatever it is I do. There's a God I'm serving and representing in all of those things. Or else I'm serving someone else. Romans 12 puts it like this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your whole lives, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We were made to serve God as priests. Number three, we were made to live under God's rule and to enjoy God's blessing. We were made to live under his rule and enjoy his blessing. What does our service to God as priests in his temple look like? What are we supposed to do? How do I know whether I'm serving God or serving something else? Uh, God doesn't just place Adam in the garden to figure it out on his own. Uh, he provides for him. He, he takes care of him. Uh, and so part of serving as priests is enjoying God's blessing. God is with him. But nor does God place Adam in the garden to let him write his own story and carve his own path and chart his own course. Instead, he gives him instruction through his word. God is a king and a judge. And so serving him as a priest also means living under his word, honoring him in our priestly service. That's about the last thing most of us want to hear today, that we have to answer to somebody other than ourselves. Um, We are taught from our earliest educational videos and cartoons to the latest memes on social media, that autonomy, that being true to yourself, uh, believing in yourself, following your own star, you do you, all of these things, that that's what it really means to live. But that's not what we see in God's design. We see a God who in his love has a pattern and an instruction of what it really means to live in his world for his glory. According to God's design, we were made to be dependent on him, not independent from him. We were made to live under his rule and enjoy his blessing. And God rules us. He gives Adam his instructions, not in order to enslave him. Uh, It's not about cheap labor or free service or anything like that. He doesn't give his rule to enslave him, but to free him in order to live life to its fullest, to enjoy his limitless provision, uh, but also to know that there is one tree you need to be aware of. So enjoy my blessing and obey my rule. Don't eat from that tree, because if you do, everything will be ruined. So God gives us his word and and serving as his priests frees us to worship God. Enjoying God's presence is impossible. Uh, Worship is impossible. Enjoying his blessing is impossible apart from listening to his word. We need to live under God's word. So that's the third point. And then number four, we were made to fill God's earth with his glory. We were made to fill this earth with with God's glory. You know, think about what's the purpose of, of all 
of this, the, the enjoying his presence part, the serving his priest, the, the living under his rule and blessing. What is the point of all of that? Which, since we're talking about God's design in the garden, is, is a way of saying, what's the purpose of life? What is all of this really about? It's not simply about what we get out of it. That much we see very clearly. It's not just what I get out of it, fulfilling my potential or achieving my dream, though there is nothing more fulfilling than worshiping God and serving Him. But it's ultimately about filling the earth with His glory, with His worthy reputation. That was His purpose in creation. That's what happens to a temple when God takes up residence in it. When God takes up residence in a temple and comes to dwell in it, he fills it with his glory. That's the language used to describe it. Exodus 40, verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 1 Kings eight eleven. The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That's what's supposed to happen with Eden. It's supposed to be filled with God's glory. But God's vision is much bigger than Eden. Listen again to his instruction in Genesis 1.28. This is what God tells the man and the woman. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What are they supposed to fill the earth with? People, obviously. But what are people, according to Genesis 1? They are image bearers of God. That's the only thing we know about humanity in Genesis 1, is that they are made in God's image to reflect God's glory. And so in filling the earth with people made in God's image, Adam and Eve's charge really is to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord, with his worthy reputation. That The, the idea is that Eden essentially would expand until the entire earth becomes God's temple, until God dwells with his people throughout all of the earth. That's the vision you see throughout the Old Testament. Think of Habakkuk 2.14, the vision that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We were made to fill the earth with God's glory. And so bringing it all together what we understand with the fact that Eden is a temple and that that's our blueprint for life is that we were made to enjoy God's presence. We were made to serve him as priests, to live under his rule and blessing, and to fill the earth with his glory. In a word, we were made for worship. We were made for worship. If Eden is a temple, then God's vision for life is worship. That's what we're supposed to do as humans in his image. So what does all that have to do with Christmas? Genesis 3 is what it has to do with Christmas. You don't get very far in the story until the whole thing falls apart. God's vision for his temple and his people is cut short when Adam and Eve choose to worship themselves rather than their creator. Adam failed his priestly role. He did not guard the garden from the evil serpent who came in and brought lies and deception. 
he failed his priestly role when he ate from the tree that he was not supposed to eat from. He broke God's rule and decided for himself. He and Eve decided for themselves what was good and what was not good. And as a result, the people who were made to enjoy God's presence under his blessing and and rule became separated from that very presence. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, shut off from God's temple, no longer allowed, sentenced to death for their sin, and now living under God's curse instead of God's blessing, cut off from the presence of his glory. That is not the way it was supposed to be. And so the reason this whole thing ends up pointing us towards Christmas is because God's original plan for creation was corrupted by human rebellion and sin. And the sin that we've all contributed to in, in big ways and small ways. And, and so this problem in Genesis 3, it cries out for a solution. If we are made to enjoy God's presence and serve as his priest, but that's no longer possible in Eden, then we need a new temple and a new kind of priest if we're going to be what God made us to be. A new kind of priest who's actually qualified to enter God's presence on our behalf. And that need for a new temple and a new priest, this longing for God's presence, this plan for for God to dwell with his people, all of that becomes central to to the story of Scripture as it unfolds and points us forward and closer and closer to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We're going to trace that as it unfolds in the weeks ahead. In the weeks ahead, uh, but as we do that, as a sample of where this story is going and why uh, we are able to go about the business of serving God today, even though we're not fully in His presence, we're still called to worship Him and serve Him, and we do that. How's that possible right now? If we're cut off from His temple, uh, as a sample of where this story is going, I want to close with Hebrews ten this morning. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, think about that for just a minute. That very thing that we're no, we were made to do but can't do because of sin, he's saying we have confidence to do that by the blood of Jesus. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and with our bodies washed with pure water. That's language of being prepared and able to dwell in the presence of God. Through Christ, that is true of us. Therefore, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God will accomplish his purposes to dwell with his people, and we're going to see it ultimately through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we uh, confess that we allow ourselves to fall asleep to the beautiful reality that you want to be with us. Lord, when we start to think about that, for some of us, uh, our hearts are filled with fear because we know what's in our hearts and we know how ugly it is, how unfit for your presence. For some of us, it's, it's a sense of, of great longing and desire that, that we're so done with this world that we want nothing more than to be in your presence. And Lord, we confess that for some of us, for many of us, there's an indifference. We've become numb to your purpose and to your promise. We go about life as usual. We don't think of this world as our temple in which we're to serve you in worship. We've become numb. Lord, would you wake us up this Advent season to see what we were made for and what Christ came and redeemed us for. Lord, we praise you for your word and for your revelation, and we pray that your spirit would do your work in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.